Hello, this is uh, Jeff Byers, producer of A Health Podacy. Just a quick note, this is a, a rerun episode. Uh, it was originally published on November 10th, 2020. It's an oldie, but a goodie, as they say, but it's no less interesting. Catch new episodes of A Health Podacy beginning December 7th. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. No one that I know of in comparative studies thinks that you adopt institutions or practices whole cloth, take them from one country, drop them in another, and think that it's going to work. You couldn't even do that with something from Canada, and we have a lot in common with Canada. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Today, we're talking about one of the most complex and controversial topics in healthcare, prices. The United States spends far more on healthcare than any other country in the world. We know from extensive research, much of it published in Health Affairs, that the primary reason our spending is so high is that our prices for just about everything in healthcare are higher than they are anywhere else in the world. Now, in the health policy community, we talk a lot about the problems created by fee-for-service payment methods. We pay for each doctor's visit, each surgery performed, not for the health outcomes these activities are designed to produce. There's no question that inherent in fee-for-service payment is the incentive to do more. And fee-for-service payment models contribute to fragmentation in care delivery as everyone in the healthcare system pursues their own revenue stream. But is fee-for-service payment the primary culprit when it comes to our high levels of spending? Well, the answer to that question really depends on how much we pay. Fee-for-service costs more when prices are high, but it costs less when prices are low. Disentangling how prices are set is the topic for today's episode. I'll be talking with Michael Guzmano, Associate Professor of Health Policy at Rutgers University in the School of Public Health. He wrote a paper with colleagues that appears in the November 2020 issue of Health Affairs that examines how physician payments are set in France, Germany, and Japan, all countries that pay physicians fee-for-service and that spend a whole lot less on healthcare than we do in the United States. Dr. Guzmano, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to jump right in with the basics. How are physician fees set in the United States? And how does that compare to the way they're set in the countries that you studied? Well, what's similar about the U.S. and these other countries is that they all rely primarily on, on fee-for-service, as you suggested. And indeed, one of the reasons we decided to look at Germany and France and Japan is that they do rely on fee-for-service. One of the big differences, however, of course, is that we have a very fragmented system. We have a combination of public and private payers, and frequently they do not coordinate their efforts at negotiation. Therefore, none of the payers in the market really have the kind of leverage that payers in these other countries have. Medicare might have that kind of leverage, but it usually hasn't had the political will to use it to really negotiate prices more aggressively although most physicians would beg to differ. So you've started a bunch of threads that we're going to follow in our conversation. Uh, first of all, you talk about there not being a dominant purchaser or a single purchaser in the U.S., but there isn't just one purchaser in these other countries either. So how does it work? 
That's right. Well, effectively, they use what is often called an all-payer rate regulation system. Uh, We've written frequently about the fact that while single-payer has lots of advantages and there are excellent single-payer systems in the world, most national health insurance systems actually have multiple payers. In Germany, there are hundreds of payers. In France, fewer but still multiple payers. But all of those payers effectively are working within a highly regulated system. So the benefit packages are virtually identical regardless of your insurer in your insurance provider. And the amount that they pay doctors and hospitals is the same as well. So you have multiple payers, but they're under one payment scheme. That's right. And you talk in your paper about the importance of constraints. You mentioned that in the U.S., Medicare although not the sole payer, is a big payer and has a lot of leverage, we don't use it. Where's the leverage coming from in these other countries? Well, ultimately, it's coming from the government. It's coming from the parliament. So all of these countries use a form of corporatism, right, which is just a fancy way of saying that you have negotiation between these quasi-public insurance entities and representatives from providers. The government is always lurking in the background, however, and they they lurk in a couple of different ways, and it works differently in the different countries. Ultimately, in all of these countries, they set budget caps. So all of the people at the negotiating table recognize that they have to come in within an overall cap, an overall amount that the government says you're going to spend that year. In addition, there's also the the issue that the government can also come in and be quite harsh in its, uh, in its negotiations with individual physician groups. So they're not at the table, but they're usually in close collaboration with the insurance payers. That kind of clout is available to a dominant purchaser in the US like Medicare, but isn't employed by that purchaser generally. Although, as you say, physicians might differ with that perspective. What accounts for the greater willingness to exercise that purchasing authority in these other countries? Well, I think overall, this really does get down to political culture, but also long-term political institutions. They have made a commitment years ago, decades ago, in fact, to cover everyone. And they recognize that additional money that you're spending on healthcare is money that isn't available for other things, including things that can actually improve the public health. And so when everyone is in that pot, you can't sort of shift around payment and pretend, as we often do in the U.S., as if there is an open-ended spigot in which we can continually tap. Now, your paper focuses on physician payment, and I'm not going to ask you to go into the complexities of hospital payment or pharmaceutical payment. But just for context, in these countries, is fee-for-service the dominant payment method across different aspects of healthcare, or or is it really just for physicians? It's primarily for physicians, but it is a bit mixed. And so you do have the application of fee-for-service in the hospital sector as well. Uh, in France, you will have separate uh, fee-for-service uh, systems for public and private hospitals, recognizing a slightly different payer mix. So fee-for-service really is used uh, across these systems. Okay, so coming back to physicians, when you think about insurance and the role that insurance plays, when I talk to folks, 
they say that they're competing on the basis of their ability to negotiate prices. Now, that's usually probably hospital prices because that's where more dollars are than physicians. But it sounds like that role of insurance is just gone in these countries. Is that right? Well, for the primary form of insurance, it absolutely is. They simply are not competing on price. They're also not competing largely on benefit package. That's the other way that uh, that insurance companies compete or in or on uh, sort of their network of physicians. So I come to our plan because we have a broader network or an, a skinnier network where we can reduce the price. They're really competing on issues of service and timeliness, how quickly they get back to people, how quickly they can help schedule appointments. So it's a completely different kind of model. Now, certainly in Germany and particularly in France, they do have a supplementary insurance model similar to Medigap in the United States. And so you even have some for-profit insurance companies that are filling in the small gaps where the public insurance doesn't cover. But for the most part, you're absolutely right. They're just not competing in the same way that U.S. commercial insurance competes. And another element, you mentioned uh, network size, but a lot of what people experience in commercial insurance in the U.S. is the PPO model, where the amount the person who's insured pays differs depending on whether you're in network or out of network. And that is then the leverage that the insurer uses to negotiate a, a price with the physician. So that's all gone. None of that exists. In France and Germany in particular, I would say they are flirting with that model. They are selectively incorporating this. So there's been a little bit um, of effort to have a, a kind of managed care light where there would be some restrictions on network in exchange for lower premiums, maybe a little bit of lower out-of-pocket costs. But it really isn't the dominant model, and it's not the main mechanism they use for trying to control healthcare spending. Yeah, I've certainly noticed in my conversations with ministers and ministerial staff around the world that we start with this assumption that the patient is going to make an economic decision and that that will then have lots of implications for how the system functions. Most of these countries start with the assumption that the individual patient should be protected from basically any or or much financial risk or that their decisions shouldn't be based on prices. And there is a little bit of moving toward the center in both ways. We're a little nervous about how far we've gone, and they're a little nervous that they've never gone there. But you're saying that the basic model really is not about driving, about patient choice driving the negotiation with physicians. No, not at all. And I will say that all of these countries are have concerns about volume and have concerns about the overconsumption of care. And all of them do have some out-of-pocket payment. So unlike Canada or England, where they really do not rely on that at all, you have non-trivial out-of-pocket spending in Germany and France in particular, and to some degree in Japan. But to make a really big contrast, if you compare France and the United States, if you're in Medicare in the United States and you have multiple comorbidities, which of course so many Medicare beneficiaries have, you're going to multiple specialists and you're paying more and more out of pocket each time. In France, if you're diagnosed with one of over 30 chronic illnesses, you are actually exempt from paying out of pocket for any care that you receive. The idea is very simple. They don't want people who they know are sick avoiding the doctor. 
Okay, so you brought up the issue of volume, and there are actually two quite different issues here. One is the one we talked about, which is patient behavior. You put in co-payments, and it's designed to reduce unnecessary care, although the evidence for that is not so great. It creates barriers for people with chronic conditions, as you just described. Or in a, in a commercial market, it can also be used to drive volume. You have a higher cost share if you go out of network. And so that creates incentives to go in network and that gives you leverage with the physicians. But there's a whole other side to this, which isn't about individual patient behavior. It's about clinician behavior. We had almost 20 years in the US in the Medicare program, the sustainable growth rate, which was designed conceptually to say uh, in this fee-for-service world, if volume goes up, we're going to take prices down so that you don't have an incentive in the aggregate to increase volume. So setting aside the patient choice issue, what do you see in these other countries about volume in, in terms of their if they're operating in an overall budget, they have to be paying attention to volume as well as price. What are they doing about volume? Well, and here's where they differ the most, I would say. And with regard to France, they probably come closest to adopting this sustainable growth model in a fairly aggressive way, although that's really quite new for France within the last, say, 10 years, where what they have done is they have monitored volume by subspecialty, and they've actually been quite threatening in their negotiations to say, hey, listen, your volume is getting out of hand. We heard multiple stories in our interviews with French officials about how they were cracking down on radiologists because they thought they were they were uh, producing way too much and, and uh, the volume was too high. And effectively, what they do is they would threaten them. Remember, this is a, a game, if you're using game theory, that's played over and over again. And they would say, listen, if you don't knock it off, next year, we're really going to be tough with negotiations. So it was very centralized and threatening in that way. Germany, very different story. Effectively, what they do is decentralize this to the local level. So the payments are actually made not directly to the physicians, but they're made to local physician associations. And so that capped pot of money available in a given year is decentralized to these associations. If an individual physician starts billing in ways that are out of line with expectations, they first get a, you know, a stern letter effectively from their association, but they can also start negotiating down um, the rates that they're being paid on a, a, a fee-for-service basis until it may just make no sense to continue to providing any more services in that year. And then I imagine they go skiing. Uh, in Japan, completely different yet again. There they try to get at this by having conditions, extensive conditions under which you can offer certain services, particularly expensive services. So if you look at the Japanese fee schedule, it has two columns and actually, the column with more of the text is the one specifying the conditions under which things can be offered. The fees are relatively trivial, and the Japanese can't threaten physicians with lower fees because they're so extraordinarily low now. I don't think they could drop them down any further. Okay, we're going to run to a quick break. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. 
Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. Climate change is affecting how we live. With wildfires raging and the number of natural disasters increasing, policy changes are being developed to address the effects of climate transformation. The upcoming December 2020 health affairs issue explores how health policy is reacting to our planet's new normal. Don't miss this critical issue. Subscribe to the journal by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. And we're back with Dr. Michael Guzmano talking about healthcare prices. You mentioned early on the existence of various institutional entities, trade associations, government ministries, and the like. It's hard in the U.S. to imagine what those are like. We don't really have either on the trade side or on the government side, things that look quite the same. Can you give us a better feel for what those institutions, what, what they're about? Sure. Well, in terms of the, the payer side, effectively what you have is something we used to have in the US, sort of not-for-profit uh, insurance companies. So imagine Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, back when Medicare was started, when it was predominantly not-for-profit and a dominant payer in the market. It's not a perfect analogy, but it would be something closer to that. On the provider side, it, it really is quite different. You have unionized physicians in these places, and so you have associations that really can represent physicians in a way that the AMA, the American College of Physicians, don't do in quite the same way. Now, having said that, if you look at the Medicare system and how it pays physicians, you do in fact have the AMA playing a central role in negotiating the values that are associated and the weights that are associated with particular physician services. So we think it might be possible to build on that system, right? There's nothing inherently wrong structurally with the RBRVS system, the resource-based relative value scale. The problem is that CMS doesn't use leverage given to it by the Congress to negotiate prices. And the, on the physician side, they act as if when any new uh, service is introduced, that they can add two weights without any external constraints on overall spending. So it's an open-ended system. So we've had a big debate in this country about Medicare for all, and that debate probably will not come to an end anytime soon. And you've said a number of things that seem relevant to that. The first is that Medicare already has leverage, but it doesn't really use it, mm -hmm. uh, or maybe not as much as it could. But I also think one of the design features in Medicare for all that, that gets lost in the political high-level discussion, but policy uh, experts know a lot about it, is what's the role for private insurance? We, a third of people on Medicare right now are in Medicare Advantage plans, which are private insurance, and rates are set by those plans. So I'm trying to follow the bouncing ball here from these other countries to the United States. If you have private plans in a Medicare for all in the US, it seems like you kind of are just replicating what we have now with everyone negotiating their own prices. But if you don't have private plans, then you have what we have now in Medicare, which is a government that's not really that willing to negotiate prices. So how do we get from these models to anything that looks like a constraint on prices? 
Well, I mean, you said a couple of things that I think are really important. One um, that you know people who advocate for Medicare for all sometimes don't acknowledge is it's no longer a single payer, right? We have multiple payers. If you look to be fair to Senator Sanders and other advocates for this at their actual plans, however, they clearly had in mind moving toward all payer rate regulation systems. And so they had provisions that would empower the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate a single set of fees, much in the way these other countries do. This really, this kind of approach, as I suggested before, could be used even within the context of, say, a Biden-like plan where you are building on the ACA, adding in a public option. But it would really require a fairly radical change in approach. It would require new legislation in which you went to an all-payer rate regulation system and all of the payers agreed to do this. Now, why might commercial insurance do this? Well, they may resist, but on the other hand, it might give them cover to pay lower prices that they currently don't think they can get away with. Uh, you know, Bruce Vladek, uh, the former uh, uh, sort of director of of, C- of what was HICVA back then before it became CMS, you know, has written that in many ways over the years, Medicare has been an innovator that is then followed by commercial payers for exactly that reason. So I think if you could ever get the Congress together to actually support all-payer rate regulation, I'm not sure the commercial insurers would be all that unhappy about it. Your comments remind me, of course, of a discussion about whether Medicare should be able to negotiate drug prices, which, of course, has been quite hard fought. So I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure what lessons we take from that. But one thing we know is that much of the opposition to that negotiation is the concern that it will bring prices down. On and that's an industry concern. When I look at these countries that you've studied, one thing that stands out, as you point out in your paper, is that physicians make a whole lot less in those countries than they do in the United States. So I can, I kind of get your point about insurers. They may view this as a type of cover, but isn't this all really just a way to drive down physician salaries? And wouldn't physicians just be completely opposed to a transition of this sort? Yes and yes. Uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, I do think it it becomes a little bit more complicated. If you speak to physicians in the US about the practice of medicine, one of the things that drives them crazy is the administrative burden that they are under. First of all, just from a a practical point of view, an all-payer rate regulation system is a far simpler, less complex, less administratively burdened way of dealing with prices it would also completely change the kind of incentives and the need for concurrent review of decisions for insurance companies questioning the clinical value of every script that a doctor writes, every intervention that they do. One of the great ironies over the years is that opponents of national health insurance have talked about it being a government-run system that would interfere with the practice of medicine. That's the old line. Doctors in other parts of the world have far less oversight of the practice of medicine. They are free to use their clinical judgment because the payers already have this other mechanism for controlling overall spending. So, 
yes, you would have your salary reduced, or let's be realistic. Most physicians are not going to have their salaries reduced. It's that the rate of increase is going to slow dramatically. So the real dollar cuts would not come for some time, and there'd be, there'd be time to adjust. The other thing I would add is that this may need to be part of a larger conversation about how we're also financing medical education. Right. A justification that you often hear from physicians about why they need to make so much money is that they come out of medical school with huge debt. First of all, I think the debt is exaggerated a bit, but there's no question that physicians in other countries do not come out of medical school with huge debt. This is viewed as a kind of public good and they pay for it directly. Okay, well, we've talked a lot about prices. I want to ask you a slightly different question. You're trained as a political scientist. You're a scholar at the Hastings Center, which focuses on ethics. And here you are writing about payment policy. How do you combine these different aspects of your training and research? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I actually see them all fitting together uh, rather well. I think that the issue of ethics um, is about values and collectively how we make value choices. And that's always how I thought about politics, at least sort of the sort of larger view of politics. Politics is about how we come together collectively to make choices about the kind of society we want. When people hear the word politics, especially right now, they're thinking about short-term interest group or electoral politics and the kind of nastiness. And that's certainly a dimension of it. There's no way around that. But politics in that broader sense really does fit in with ethics. Right? There's a reason Aristotle wrote books about both. One of the things I also note is that you've done a lot of work looking at other countries and often in the U.S., people will just say, well, that's really interesting, but we can't import what they do and expect it to work here. We're different. Mm -hmm. What's your reaction to that comment? My reaction is twofold. One of the reasons, uh, as you know, I've been working with Victor Rodwin from NYU for over 20 years comparing big cities is in part to get around that kind of criticism. We look at these cities that have, actually have a lot in common in terms of their populations, their political economies, and it helps to eliminate this notion of, well, the reason they have such good outcomes is because they have a homogeneous population. They're much smaller than we are doesn't really hold up to scrutiny very well. The other thing is that no one that I know of in comparative studies thinks that you adopt institutions or practices whole cloth, take them from one country, drop them in another, and think that it's going to work. You couldn't even do that with something from Canada, and we have a lot in common with Canada. What you can do, however, is adapt lessons. What are the underlying principles of these practices? Why are they working? And how can we use our institutions to do something similar? I've talked about all-payer rate regulation. Maryland uses all-payer rate regulation. It happens within the context of a single state, and that's probably less effective than it would be at the national level, right? But it can be done. Well, it's been great uh, reading your work and having an opportunity to go a little deeper in this conversation. Dr. Guzmano, thank you for spending some time with us today on A Health Policy. Thank you, and thanks to Health Affairs for doing this. A Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. Jeff Byers produces the show under the direction of Patty Sweet, Brian Dobbs edits the show, 
Sue Ducat and Sarah Kolk helped dot the I's and cross the T's with scheduling. Julia Vavelo produced the artwork. Music by Brian Dobbs and Julia Vavelo. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.